You are now tuning in to the Own the Build podcast. Join Sealing's very own Paul Hemming, where each week he interviews experts from the world of construction and asks all the important questions around intelligent construction management. Hello and welcome to episode 72 of the Own the Build podcast with me, Paul Hemming. Thank you to everyone who keeps on leaving us lovely reviews. If you haven't done one, please leave us one. I will forever be grateful to you. The title of today's show, today's episode, is the ICE, the Institute of Civil Engineers, and its place in the modern world. And we are joined, would you believe it, by the president of the Institution of Civil Engineers, Ed McCann, also senior director at Expedition Engineering. We're very lucky to have you on the show today, Ed. Welcome. My pleasure. Really great to have you here. The big question is, where are you sat, Ed? You look, it looks very regal. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sitting in, the, sitting in the president's office at the IC, which is a rather splendid room, actually. It certainly looks it. And you've got a gong there. What else have you got in there? No, we have uh, George Stevenson's clock. We have the original seal, the original charter, a signed portrait of the Queen. Uh, yeah, and lots of fancy furniture. Yeah, it's quite flash, if you like that sort of thing. Very, very nice. <laughs> and do you? <laughs> well, it, it's, it's not how I decorate my front room, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, great, it's great for entertaining royalty. Brilliant. No, it, it, looks, it looks fantastic. And... Um, I was looking through your your LinkedIn earlier today, Ed, as I do, because I'm a bit of a uh, of a stalker before before we record. I see that you worked on the um, London 2012 velodrome. Is that right? I certainly did. Yes. What a project that is! I absolutely love that building. What were you involved in? Well, so we, I, I was the project director for our company. We were the civil and structural engineers for it. Uh, it was a fantastic team, actually. I mean, uh, uh, Hopkins Architects and um, BDSP with a engineer's great client is one of those you don't get many in a career where you work with a fantastic team doing a project that feels really important and then on opening day they break four world records and beat the crap out of the Aussies which was a uh, particularly uh, important did you manage I remember did you did being a pro- project director on there give you any rights to tickets to any of the events no or? no Oh, but come on, Ed. <laughs> normally it does. So it's quite unusual. The Olympics are really not, they, they don't do that. You can imagine there were probably 10,000 people worked on the Olympics. So, uh, But no, we had to apply for tickets the same as everybody else, and I didn't get any. So I, I got to go Ooh, to the test okay. events, and then I got one of those, you can walk around the park and buy an ice cream tickets. Um, but I didn't get inside <laughs> any of the venues. Oh, that's a shame. But that, that building, not only is it particularly beautiful, am I right in saying that, the roof, because it's, it's such a, in terms of engineering, it's an amazing building, right? Is the roof like a reflection of the track below it? Effectively? That's not where it comes from. I mean, but but that, that it's it's a very much that the logic of that building is is the track geometry begets the seating bowl so that people can see it, and then we've basically shrimp wrap, shrink wrapped the structure around that. And when you do that, when you if you look at if you if you look at the track and then the seating bowl and then you try and map a roof on top of it, it's it's a great convenience that you get such a, a structurally efficient um, form as that sort of uh, cable net structure. 
And so it was, in a sense, fortuitous because the yeah the track geometry and the seating bowl gave rise to a, a, a convenient structural form for the roof, which was then uh, rather nicely executed. So absolutely beautiful, isn't it? Is it fair to say, Ed, and I, I am a meager quantity surveyor, but is it fair to say that that project is an engineer's dream, like in terms of the intricacies of it, the beauty of it, and all those things that you're just describing? I think I, I think it's not. I, I I don't like those sort of hard boundaries. It really was a sort of integrated team, and um, I mean, the, the, you know, clearly the architecture, the sports architecture, everybody who built it, it's a real team thing. But from a, a structural engineer's perspective, it doesn't get much better than that because it is it's really at the edge of what you want to do. It's an express structure. It's using a lot of engineering techniques. You know, you're getting to use the, the sort of the absolute cutting edge engineering toolbox um, to to make something like that work, particularly when it comes to sort of dynamics and the different um, states that a building like that is. As you build it, it sort of moves a lot and you've got to get it precise in the end to within, frankly, a few millimeters. And, and doing all of that is, is yes, like a, it's a, a real symphony of uh, engineering and construction, actually, to get it to work. And, and everybody plays a, a, an important part in it. I don't think you find anyone who worked on that project who hasn't got it as their lifetime, in their lifetime top three. It's one of those. And for most of us, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the best project we've done, you know. <laughs> I, can, I can only imagine. And, and so you mentioned that role previously, that project. So before we kind of jump into where you're at now, how did you arrive to be sat in such a regal office space, Ed? What's, what's, your, what's your background? Tell us about your career. Uh, so I'm, I'm, um, I'm a second generation Irish immigrant. So my, my parents came over on the boat in the sort of uh, late 50s, early 60s. I grew up in West London. I, I, yeah, fortunate in a sense. Uh, it, it seems crazy now, but I, I went to Imperial College, which is quite hard to get in these days. I, uh, and I, I went there got a degree in civil engineering and went and worked for a really good sort of Victorian era consultancy called Binion Partners. And um, they were, it was a fantastic place to learn your trade. They were really, really good, thoughtful engineers doing water engineering. So I was, I was mainly working on, uh, well, sewerage, flood defences, um, long sea outfalls, hydropower schemes, those sort of things. And I was there for 12 years, ended up at Terminal 5 where I ran the water engineering team. And that was a fantastic project as well. And um, after that, I I met a guy called Chris Wise, who was um, a sort of big sort of director at Arup at the time. He was uh, leading the team on the Millennium Bridge at the time. And uh, he and I amazing project after together. amazing project getting yeah, cited they're, they're here, not right? bad. They're not bad. I didn't work <laughs> on the Millennium Bridge, I have to say, although I would have loved to. Um, but Chris and I met at Imperial. He just left Arup to start this little company. He was still in the back bedroom. Um, in in his home actually uh, started expedition there and I joined him a couple of years in we, we'd been teaching at Imperial on Friday afternoons for a year or two at that time and I decided to pile in and became one of the directors there and so we did the back bedroom startup thing in the early noughties through and 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 it was um interesting times and we we did get to do some amazing projects I mean the Infinity Bridge we did the Greek National Opera House and Library um, we did the Turin Tower for with Renzo Piano, Banco Intesa San Paolo in Turin. Okay, yeah. And um, yeah, it was, yeah, I look back on it, I, we didn't know how lucky we were. It was just one, one sort of amazing project after another. 
Uh, and yeah, so and then uh, and latterly, so we we gave the business away. So Chris, Sean, Walsh, and I, who were the owners, set up an employee benefit trust um, and gave the company to the trust. It, Arup had done something like that a few years before, and a number of others have before and since. And so it's an employee-owned organisation and and actually a social enterprise and B Corp. So we set this thing up, which is a bit unusual. I think we're probably oh, fantastic. We're, the, we're the only engineering consultancy that's a that's a B Corp and, and registered social enterprise. And we started doing other things as well. So we set up a little educational business and um, started a sustainability consultancy and an architecture practice. And a you are a busy man, aren't you, Ed? Well, I didn't do, I didn't do all of that, but we collectively put all <laughs> that together under the, under the one envelope. And um, yeah, and so on we go. And the engineering part of that business, we still do the structural engineering stuff, but I, I'm particular with a couple of colleagues have been focusing in recent years a lot on uh, innovation engineering and productivity improvements. So we're working largely with big infrastructure companies and their supply chains, trying to get under the bonnet of the, the sort of lack of productivity and room for improvement in our industry and what do we have to do to improve it. So that's been my focus for probably five years now. Also do quite a bit on um, early strategic engineering on big master plan projects. So how to get the engineering decisions right when you're doing big brownfield developments. And so we, that's a sort of specialist area for us. But we're small. I mean, if we all turn up, there's 80 of us in a room. It's not a, we're not a big multi-dis or anything. Smallish, but that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a decent sized group. But, you know, it sounds like you have an incredibly, uh, you've done so much, you've done some really amazing projects and you're now in this, position where you know you've built this business and you're still part of it how do you then naivety how do you then become president of the ICE? what's what's that transition how does that how does that look um, as a process well so so the, in my case and it does vary so one of the things about the institution is that the the presidents you've got to understand them as a sort of it's it's a collective you have a presidential team there's uh, and and we're, we're, we're in place, we're only in place for a year and they come from different places. So my predecessor was from WSP um, you know, and uh, she was a director there specialising in transport planning and things like that. And before her, we had the sort of ex-CEO of Keir and the ex-CEO of Costain and so John Armit. Various, so people come from different places and, and so there's no single journey to it. Uh, in my case, I became really involved in institution in the institution through originally the Joint Board of Moderators, which is their accreditation arm. So visiting universities and uh, accrediting university programs. And then I went on to the IC Council, I think it was 2011. And I did a couple of terms on council and I became involved in the the learned society, the engineering knowledge function and, and various other things. So so I suppose in a sense, I, I, I was I did say you were in, a busy man. You're it was a lot of different bits, yeah. And then, and then sooner or later, someone you 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 get invited to be a vice president, and then uh, some of the vice presidents are invited. You're considered. There's a a, com, a committee that uh, looks at the um, a number of people who are nominated and and makes a decision about who they're going to invite to be president. And I was shocked. They clearly lowered the bar a long way, and I was really, really just <laughs> come really on. I never, I never would have. I, Honestly, if, if you, you know, when I, I wouldn't have dreamt of it when I, I remember when I got my, uh, when I got my chartered thing, whatever it was, 25 years ago. So I mean, I remember coming in and seeing my name on the wall. They used to put it on the wall and I go, well, that's it. I'm done now. I'm an, I'm an MIC. That's it. Finished. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> nice one, right? I'm off. I might do the velodrome, but other than that, no. I'm all good. <laughs> no, we're done. No, it's, it's it's incredible. What drew you initially to the institution? Why did you think I want to get chartered? Why did you come to the ICE? Well, I, I suppose it since I didn't think about it very much. I think it was it was it was just the done thing. So you you went to university, you got a qualification. If you worked in the sort of organisation I worked in, it was just part of your career development to you know, get professionally qualified. I, I, I don't think I ever thought of it as an option uh, to, to get professionally qualified. It was just the thing you did if you worked in, in consultancy. Yeah, do you see, because I'm a QS, I did RSCS accredited um, course. I was a contractor as opposed to a professional consultant. So I was always in contracting. So I think as a mentality to chartership, that is different. I know QSs who I know that I'm friends with who were in consultancies. It's much more of a typical trodden path if you like to to go and do that is there a difference though between engineers and surveyors in terms of it is a much more trodden path to go and join the ICE do you think I I, I don't know actually I, I, I thought you were going to ask a different question which was about contracting versus consulting but uh, where I think there there is there are different attitudes particularly if you've come from a sort of construction engineering background or you've done building related stuff they tend not to but if you do civil engineering degrees even in contracting you know if you if you're going to be if you think of yourself as I've got a civil engineering degree and I'm moving through these organizations it's it's pretty well established that people see the value in professional qualification not so if you go to you know house building and you look at people who are doing um, yeah commercial buildings for example who've come out of construction management degrees and things like that they're much less likely to think about professional qualification in my experience I think they should uh, but but in my experience they, they there are lots who don't yeah which would make sense as to kind of like the experience that I would have had more of I guess so about the ICE without stating the obvious the history of the ICE and the importance of the ICE up to today, what has it been? How do you see it standing in the industry? Yeah, well, you've got to understand the origins of it, really, in the sense that um, at the end of the 18th century, moving into the 19th century, you had a massive sort of transformation um, driven through the Industrial Revolution in the sort of docks and, and ports and canals and roads, and all of this stuff was being built, and there was no... There was no body of knowledge to support all of that activity. These new things that were being done were, were being done sort of by people who had done other things. They were builders, they were stonemasons, they were whatever they were. And, and there came a moment when people started looking around and going, it'd be quite handy to get together to discuss how to do this properly. And it was, a lot of people don't realise this, but the institution was actually founded by a group of youngsters. They were all under 30. And they got together and really? they asked, Tel- yeah, yeah, and they, they got together and they wrote to Telford and said, look, Telford, we think we need to have a sort of get together, uh, let's call it an institution to talk about this stuff so we can share our knowledge and understanding. And, and so it was an absolute classic learned society. It was a group of people who said, we need to develop and share knowledge about how to do this thing. And they invited Telford to be the first president. He was by then an old man, uh, but he said he would do it. And that was the start of it. And so the institution started off really as a place where people got together and go, well, how do we do dams, canals, highways? What did you do? Did it work? Um, can we learn from that? And they wrote it up. They, they shared the knowledge. And for many years, that's what it was. It was about building 
practice knowledge among communities of practitioners. At some point later in the century, membership became like a qualification. It was, it was if you were an AMICE or an MICE in those days, it was, a, it was essentially telling the society that you were safe to trade, that that person really knows how to do this thing. So if you're gonna build a dam or a canal or a road, get yourself one of these characters because they know what they're doing. And that, that began the sort of the role of the institution in qualifying professionals. And to this day, that, that is a, a key role that we fulfill is to essentially protect society against charlatans by examining people and saying the peers, the people who do this thing called civil engineering say that this person is safe, is, is, is someone you can trust with your money, your time, your life and all the rest of it. And so, and then the third thing that, that was probably always happening but has become much more focused in recent years is the role that the institution has in providing independent, um, if you like, impartial advice into senior policy makers around things about like infrastructure and, and it's something that a lot of our members I don't think really understand that it is done but it is done and, and the institution works very hard and other institutions but we, we really focus on it at the institution of civil engineers is is trying to provide you know governments and and senior decision makers with advice about what they should do with infrastructure is it you know trying to get them to understand what it means for the economy for people in society and whether they should pay for it and how to buy it as a as a sort of public sector so so those three roles so three things that the institution does is, is we act as a learned society capturing developing and sharing the practice knowledge of doing what we do the second thing is we qualify people and we need to improve that qualification system by the way we'll come back to that and then thirdly we try to provide high quality impartial advice to senior de de decision makers and all of that's wrapped up in our charitable charter so we're a charity it's written on the wall. We're here to, you know, the original charge. It's it's hard. It's in copper plate, eighteen, I think it's eighteen twenty-eight, <laughs> and it's it's hard to read. <laughs> Going back to what you said, actually, about point number three and that policy making and support, and you you kind of describing that even your members perhaps don't fully comprehend that. I would I would say as an as a complete outsider looking, and that's something that I wasn't. It, it makes perfect sense, of course, but it's not something that uh, screams out to me. The standardization and the getting your members so that they are all verified to achieve those certain standards is kind of what rings through, perhaps, to me. I'm really interested to learn more about the policy side of things and perhaps talk to you a little bit about that. Is there something like really relevant? Like, is there an example where you've helped um, advise on infrastructure? I think it's, it's, of course, the first thing you, you realise when you start talking about policy influence and things like that, it's not one organisation speaking to one organisation. It's a whole ecosystem of participants in a discussion and a debate. But I think it is fair to say that the institution has been a, a, a consistent and positive voice for decades in this in, in terms of um, influencing UK infrastructure policy and I'll give you I'll give you some sort of concrete examples of that which you you may or may not recognize but broadly speaking in the UK we have cross-party consensus that infrastructure is socially positive it has positive impact broadly speaking they understand and agree that they need as government to invest in it now that wasn't always the case it's not even it's not even questioned now. It's a, it's almost a, and and if you look at the recent really? spending review, yeah. If you look at the recent spending review 
They didn't change their infrastructure investment plans. They changed a lot of things that didn't change that. Why? Because they understand that infrastructure investment is very good for society, it's good for the economy. Now they'll fight, they'll fight over individual projects. You know, different parties will say, I don't want to do this here and I do want to do that there. But the principle of infrastructure investment. Other things that have come through, like the National Infrastructure Commission, so the establishment of an independent body to advise government on infrastructure policy, that is something that we helped create. We advocated for it as a as an institution said you need to set something up and government agreed to that and so we have the national infrastructure commission similarly and not only us but we we advocated for the creation of a uk infrastructure bank uh, infrastructure projects authority the ipa and and the infrastructure client group and all of these bodies so it, like it, the, yeah sort of infrastructure that generates an infrastructure environment in the uk that's that's so enjoy everything yeah you're touching so many different things right that impact then and that's right. It's creating, it's creating the sort of structures that are necessary to identify what projects to do, what investments to make, and those sorts of things. So, and you need, and the reason why it's not very well known, let's say, is partly because um, if you're going to be impartial and if you're going to influence governments of different stripes over many years, the last thing you can do is stand up in the national press and start shouting about and it and crow about it. Okay, that and, ma- I was going to, yeah, you, that makes perfect sense. So, so, okay. So, and I'm not. I, I hope I'm. I'm not talking against myself when I say I'm just sharing with you that that's this is what we attempt to do is we attempt to be a supportive critical friend consistent and uh, reliable and not walking down the street shouting at you you know I think that's really interesting and I I think that really resonates with me as like I say an outsider looking in I think that will resonate with people listening and even as you say what's funny is it will probably resonate with people who are inside who are members because you, you said probably isn't something that screams out to them but it's fascinating conversation ed and we're going to talk a little bit more but right after this break hello it's me again i wanted to share a quick story with you on why i co-founded ceiling with my best mate chris chris and i we're both qs's and this is going to sound sad But one night, we were sat in the pub talking about subcontract tendering and we realised the industry had a problem. Number one, procurement was too paper-based. Number two, it was too time-consuming and every QS had their own unique way of doing things. And number three, perhaps most importantly, if you want to competitively tender, you need to know hundreds of the best subcontractors. We simply didn't. That's why we created C-Link. It's software to solve subcontract tendering. We wanted to remove these challenges and help the industry get better. So if you, or someone you know, tenders with subcontractors, you've got to see our software. Head over to our link, www.get.c-link.com forward slash podcast to find out more. I will include it in the description box. So again, there's no excuses. Now, let's get right back to the show. So, Ed, one thing that I ask all of my guests is to debunk a common myth about their role. You're the first president of an institution that I've had the pleasure to ask this question to. But if you could, what is one common myth about being president of the IC, aside from the fact that you're constantly hammering that gong in your office? (laughs) No, I I don't. I, I don't really... Struggling to think of a common myth, but I tell you something: some people think it's paid, 
<laughs> which is not. So, 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 yeah. So, yeah, anybody watching, yeah, yeah, it's, it's an unpaid role. <laughs> you do it for love. <laughs> okay, that's a pretty good one, actually. And um, so we've talked about, you know, the history of the ICE. We've talked about why it's so been so important up to this point where we're at today. Could you describe how you see the future? Of the IC. Obviously, it's evolving, technology is evolving, everything is evolving in the world of work. How do you see the future of the ICE? Well, I think if you, if, you, if you look at those three functions, the three things that the ICE does, and indeed lots of professional institutions do in their own area, that thing about the learned society where you're building and continually looking after the practice knowledge, the qualification and the uh, influence. If you take those three things and ask yourself, is there a need for that now? And is there a need for that into the future? And I look at those and I go, there definitely is. Yes, I mean, yes, you, yes. Tick, tick, tick. So, so, it, so, so if you say all these things are important today and appear likely to be important into the future, uh, and we have an institution with 200 years history and 100,000 odd members, all of whom are kind of bought into that mission, if, you, if it didn't exist already, you'd kind of want to invent, invent it again, at which point I say, uh, well, we, we, that's what we should do. We should continue to reinvent ourselves against the, the evolving challenges we face. And if you take all three of those and you talk about the learned society or practice learning, we've got huge challenges in our area. We don't really know how to engineer for a low carbon future in practice. You know, we don't really know how to uh, address many of the sort of technological challenges and socioeconomic challenges we face today. So, so not only it, 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 the knowledge doesn't even exist, we have to create it. We have to create the ways that we're going to do these things. And so there's a huge challenge there for me to say nothing of getting that captured and making sure everyone understands and, 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 and makes use of the learning. And then secondly, when you go into qualifications, and I think the, the experience, uh, the findings out of Grenfell and, and the institution did a sort of an exercise itself called In Plain Sight, which in a sense asked, uh, could Grenfell happen in the infrastructure sector? And, and if so, what should we do about it? So it was a, and, and which drew very strong conclusions about the need to assure competence and make sure that people perform in practice. Um, in a way that means that the, their work is safe for society and, and all the rest of it. And, and I think, um, well, I know that, that there are lots of us who believe that more needs to be done to to ensure that that we are relevantly qualified and assuredly competent through our working lives. Um, and that it isn't just a question of passing an exam when you're 27 years old and then see you later, you know, as long as you pay your subs. So, so I think there's a, there's a real job of work to be done um, about through life. How do you, because that's kind of the conflict to some degree I've had in my mind with, because obviously the, the institution generates money through membership. How, how, do, how do you, it's kind of like two competing elements to some degree, isn't it? In that you want, as an organisation, you need the membership but then you have to keep the standard standards up. So how, how do you manage that and how do you continue to evolve it? Well, I think it, it, clearly if, if, if it becomes so difficult to be a member uh, that, you know, that it becomes a distraction or it become, puts people off, that, that would be unhelpful. But, but really, I think it's, these things have to go move forward in lockstep. So we need our client community to turn around and, and say of the people they employ, I need you to be demonstrating your competence and your qualifications to me. I need to know that you can do the job properly. So you need a demand signal, if you like, coming in from um, clients through employers 
uh, into the workforce, which encourages them to do this and, and, and learn the stuff they need to learn. So that I think is important. It's interesting though, that sometimes the harder that, that you make a qualification or an examination, the more cachet it carries. You know, people, you, you might look at some of the world's most eminent universities, and if you went and had a look inside them, they might not be the most fun ones to go to. They might not even have the best teaching, but the, the cachet that the qualification carries because you went to this, that, or the other elite university just sucks people into it. They just want to have that, that sort of a highly regarded badge, uh, even though the experience might not be much fun. And I think, so, so I think we, 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 in, in doing this as long, uh, the other thing I'd say, final point on this, so the three things, one of them are demand signal. The other thing is don't be afraid of, of having tough challenges because actually they are attractive to a certain kind of people who are, who are ambitious and determined and all the rest of it. And thirdly, I think our members are determined to be competent. They want to be competent. Sometimes it's quite difficult. You know, no one wants to be poor at their job. And I think that the key really is to make the development of competence as accessible as possible. You want to make it easy, quick, interesting, relevant. You don't want people telling you that you need to be competent in something you never do. You know, that would be really unhelpful. So it's got to be relevant to your work experience and all the rest of it. So I, I don't fear it at all. I just think we've, we've got to embrace a fast-changing work environment uh, or a continually changing and fast-changing work environment and say keeping assured competence in that context means we've got to keep going. We've got to keep learning through life and proving that we've learned. And so I, I, think, it's, I think it's positive, actually. I think we'll get better outcomes. We'll be better professionals. We'll enjoy it more and our clients will get better value. So. Well, I can see the energy, Ed, which is, which is amazing and the passion. In, at your inauguration event, you talked about productivity and efficiency. You kind of talked about it at the, when you were kind of introducing yourself at the start today that was at the heart of your speech right and at the heart of what you're trying to do in your um, term so to speak what what are you trying to do during your term it's a personal interest of mine I mean I'm, I'm interested I think good engineering is is always it's always efficient it always does something useful it's always efficient and effective it's almost the same saying do good engineering well that's don't waste stuff and do something that really works well for the, for its users and so for me that's that's the sort of it's a fundamental value that I have. And, and it's, I found it over time deeply frustrating to look at the levels of waste and crapness. You mean over-engineering almost? Or? Uh, over-engineering, you know, I mean, just little numbers, like 15% of all plasterboard bought to UK sites go straight in a skip. You know, 5% to 10% <laughs> of all concrete brought to UK construction sites goes straight on the floor. You know, they're, they're, these sorts of things, they offend me. <laughs> you know? Yeah, they, don't, they just sound <laughs> awful, don't they? I, I'm with you. And, so, and, and like lots of, lots of engineers don't like that. We don't like Of course we don't. I mean, you know, who would like that? It's not a nice thing. So, And what we were doing, because as I said, we are a presidential team. We run a structure here where we try and uh, link together and build on what, what, what others are doing. And, and Rachel Skinner led really strongly with climate and carbon last year, which I also am very interested in. But one of the things she said to me was, uh, you know, she goes out and she says, yes, we need to care about this. This is really important. And people say, yes, yes, yes. But what do I do? Because I work on a building site or I work doing detailed drawings of concrete slabs. What do I do? 
Now, it's all very well talking about, you know, international strategies and, um, you know, offsetting plans and all the rest of it. What all do I do? quite abstract, engineer? isn't it? But how do I What do I do? Today, I'm going in job. tomorrow. I'm going to design a beam. So what do I do differently? And so in a That's sense, what agree. I'm trying to do is, is articulate for a community of practicing engineers. Look, if you believe in that, this is what you've got to do because you've got to work hard to make that structure efficient. You've got to make sure you choose the right materials, that you put the right factors of safety and that you optimize your design. You clearly communicate. And then if you're building it, you need to build it in accordance with the drawings and plan your, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I, I've, I'm, I'm essentially trying to build on what Rachel did last year with a sort of series of, you know, answers to those questions about I'm an engineer, I'm a I'm in procurement, I'm a client, what do I do? And um, we're filling it out. And not just me, I mean we've got a community advisory board here going chaired by Andy Alder from Tideway and uh, Jacobs and you've got um Darren James, the CEO of Kelp Bray and a gang of really clever people around them trying to materialise this and say, okay, this is what we do in practice. So, so that's the, broadly speaking, that's that's where it comes from, a sort of personal interest in this, a company interest. I mean, Expedition have always really focused on doing lean design, lean engineering, clever construction to minimise waste and all the rest of it. So it's not just me, it's lots of other people involved in that. And I, I've chosen to take, to put it top dead centre of my year to give it a bit of oomph, a bit of a push. That makes, that makes sense because, you know, <laughs> Again, as a QS, you know, over-engineering to me is something that you'd always potentially encounter, try to work with engineers, with architects to potentially value engineers. So that's kind of, you know, when I think of over-engineering, that's how, that's what resonates with me. But actually, we've talked a lot about net zero. I mean, it's front and centre for absolutely everyone now, really, isn't it, in terms of policy and when you actually think about over-engineering in the context of what you were saying about dry lining, in the context of what you're saying about concrete, cement, etc., it actually is so important. And we kind of have been so unlean, haven't we, in our processes from hugely, hugely. all the way through. I mean, it is, it is amazing. When, when you, so what, a lot of the work we're doing at the moment with the big infrastructure companies is, is taking... Uh, processes like the process of doing tunnels or the process of doing earthworks, the process of building bridges and, and looking at them as end-to-end processes and going, okay, we do this, then we do this, then we do this, then we do this. Where's the waste? Where's the error? Where are the problems? And when you do that, working with the supply chain, it's absolutely eye-opening not to say eye-watering, to see what it is from that. A bit of both. And, and it is the levels that, I mean, you, you'll hear... Um, Nick Smallwood, who's the chair of the IPA, he's walking around at the moment and he thinks there are 40% uh, productivity improvements available in construction, in his opinion. I think he's right. It could be, could be on the low side. You know, I think, I think the range is 30 to 50. It kind of depends what you're looking at. Some systems are you know, worse and some are, are a bit better. But he's not, he's not in the wrong field with numbers like that. And if you, if you look at the sort of material waste, the specification of material waste, and a lot of people, it's certainly not me, just me, um, this is lots of people doing research projects, it's pointing to 30 to 50% of all materials specified in structures are not necessary. And if you talk about carbon footprints and all the rest of it, what, what's that all about then? You know, these are gargantuan proportions of our carbon footprint are basically over-specified, over-ordered, wasted yeah, in the process. The mind, the mind boggles, doesn't it? You know, you think it's 38% is now being attributed to our sector, right, in terms of carbon. And then you think, and we're over-ordering 
these materials by X percent, these materials by... And you just... Sometimes I really struggle with the gravity of the situation. But then at the same point, you have to think that what we're doing and how we have previously operated actually presents the opportunity for some really significant, not easy wins, nothing is easy, but do you see what I mean? I know the size of the prize is huge. Actually, it, they, they're quite hard to go at, except in certain circumstances. It, 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 you, you do need, you need a really activated client working with an engaged supply chain to, to really do what you need to do. The, the, the drivers, because it, it all sounds insane, you know, so why on earth would anyone do this? But when you look <laughs> at their business models, you can see why they do it. So, for example, why do design engineers add in their own factor of safety? Why do they do that? Why do they put in global safety factors? And the numbers that people talk about are 20, 25 percent global safety factors. So if I'm aiming for a, if the code says I've got to get 100 uh, percent, you know, then I'll go for 80 you know, and I feel safe in. So why are they doing that? And when you burrow into it, you'll find it's a whole load of, um, I haven't had enough time to do all the checks I want to do, so I'm just adding it just in case. Uh, I'm worried that commercially I'm in a contract where someone's going to come back and have a nibble at me. Uh, and and I'm, or, or I'm I'm a junior and I'm not entirely sure what I'm doing, so maybe I'll, I'll add a little bit in but there. But I'm, I'm optimistic, Ed, about the opportunities that there are for significant big wins let's call it easy wins but where i struggle is exactly what you just mentioned there like the, it's the commercial element of it i don't know how many engineering organizations because we're talking about engineering could apply it to architecture and other ones how they can stop over engineering in some of the examples that we've talked about because commercially it's a de-risk for them so the whole system would kind of have to change to some degree to remove that risk commercially. So this is why the conversation with the client is so important. The c client has to realize, is it to realize these savings, they've got to adopt a different approach to commercial and technical risk management I'm regular, and standards compliance risk management. So we, we have this sort of logic or, or misunderstanding in our sector that you manage risk by giving it to someone else. You know, so... Oh, so yeah. <laughs> And, and I'm afraid your profession have been... Oh, don't start. Uh, I thought you'd been way too nice to QS. Contributors. <laughs> they will advise Smiling from to, ear to ear, Ed, ear. about that. That's the happiest I've seen you so far today. <laughs> so so the, 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 the tendency for uh, uh, procurement advisors, quite often surveyors, to encourage their clients to adopt sort of risk transfer models. You're Let the absolutely contractor right. carry all the risk. And actually, what they don't, what none of you are talking about is the fact that that risk will be priced in whether it happens or not. And actually, all that will happen is it will be put into places which are poorest, poorest place to deal with it. And technical risk management, people don't really, it seems odd to me, but they don't really understand that the way you manage technical risk is by doing more thinking, more testing, more independent review. That's how you shrivel technical risk. Now, that means you have to pay a bit more up front. But that's how you get rid of technical risk. You know, I don't, I can't talk to you about technical risk, but you're preaching to the choir here. My um, dissertation was all about like game theory in how you procure risk in construction, because like you say, the thesis for QS dumbing this down is, oh, there's a risk. Where can we throw that? Because I don't want, I don't want to deal with it. And that just <laughs> is the problem, isn't it? In many ways. <laughs> 
Well, you, you can say that. I can. I can. Can't really comment, but you're right. Yeah, but, the, the, <laughs> but but so 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 I think I think the uh, the, the more let, let me say more progressive clients I think have woken up to the fact that they are going to have to change the way they understand procurement and risk management if the supply chain is going to adapt its behaviour. At the moment, you've got a supply chain behaving really quite defensively. And, and sort of changing themselves into that. So it, you get, if you carry on behaving like that for long enough, you forget how to do it lean. You don't even know what it is to do real technical risk management. And, and, and that- that's kind of where we are, right? <laughs> you talked about clients there, and we've talked about policy before. We're talking about over-engineering, waste, etc. Is the most important client, like the government almost, so that we can change policy to some degree to ease some of that commercial burden that some people some companies think that they're carrying this that strikes me as something the way that, that sort of certainly talking about infrastructure projects are procured and delivered involves arm's length bodies like national highways and network rail and these sorts of organizations i mean critically they are the people who really need to get this they really need to understand it and to be fair many of them absolutely do um, you know, at, at, you'll find people in those organisations and we'd all be nodding at each other going, yes, yes, yes. Then, they, then there are challenges of internal uh, systems, bureaucracies, you know, they're, they're big organisations, they sprawl all over the place and not everyone gets it. But so I think they're critical. And then I think you have to have, um, you, you rapidly get to a position where you have to understand that lowest cost isn't the same as best value. And, and, and I think sometimes the, the sort of um, procurement yeah, the, the, sort of the embedded logic that commercial competition and lowest cost generates best value, and, and the reality is that's not that's not true. It's a race to the bottom, uh, isn't it? It, yeah. it? it is is usually and often often and maybe even usually a, a race to the bottom. So I think there, there's the, there's a job of work to be done, and I think we as an industry haven't done nearly well enough in helping our clients really understand the implications of of their behaviours, and and we've we've to some extent we've been complicit and sometimes even worse in, in in enabling and allowing that you know that for some it has turned out to be quite convenient that clients don't really understand what we do you know and uh so which is yeah but I, i'm really encouraged so things like project 13 which the institution of civil engineers has developed as a sort of a, a alliancing philosophy for the delivery of infrastructure is really powerful uh, there's a lot of understanding in things like the ipa national infrastructure commission that moving away from these traditional let's say commercial models is something we need to do urgently if we're to deliver productivity and other benefits to society so so i think it, it is in the world of the institutions um, to offer impartial advice to these people and say look it's not us we don't personally gain from this, but society will. So you should you should think about it this way. And that is the importance of the institution today and moving forward, right? It's quite a, in, in, it's, in the it's policy really, space. Really, really relevant. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like I could talk Absolutely. to you for a lot longer, Ed. But unfortunately, we're almost out, out of time now. Is there, you know, for any younger listeners listening? What, what is it about being an engineer that you enjoy so much? Why should you become an engineer? There are a number of things that, that I, would, I would chuck in. I'm going to give you two or three of them. The first of, first of them is that what we do as civil engineers is vital in the way that being a doctor or being a teacher is vital. 
There well, is that's no the same, isn't it? Civil engineers save more lives than doctors. Well, that, 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 there is a saying. No, no, if, yes, no, that's right. But the, 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 it's impossible to imagine modern life without roads and railways and, and hydropower schemes and all that sort of stuff. And, and so if you want to do something that is, is really vital to human survival, then this is one of those things. There are others, but this is one of them. There are many things that are not vital to human survival. And, and so if you're someone who's motivated by doing stuff that really, value, really probably. matters, <laughs> then, <laughs> yeah. If you want to do something that's really important, then this is an interesting place to be. The second thing I'd say about it, and this is sort of, you know, a common place among engineers, is that it's an extraordinarily varied career and space to work in. I mean, I have worked all over the world on all sorts of projects with amazing sets of people and so have a huge amount of civil engineers. That's their story as they work, you know, around the world with, with, on a huge variety of projects. Every single project is different. Every single day you learn something else. So it's, it's a tremendously uh, rich space if you're the sort of person who likes new challenges and, and likes learning continuously in your life, then it's a great place to be as well. And I think that so the final thing would be to say that it's um, a, a, they're a good bunch. One, I mean, I know that, that might sound a bit odd, but actually... This is coming from an are, engineer, though. <laughs> we are, we are, that's true. We are not, we, yes, we are not necessarily the most popular people at parties. We, us QS is saying we're a good bunch as well, but other people don't think it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but they're right. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but what, what I mean is that is that they, they have that you've probably heard that sort of saying as well is, is that in terms of problem solving there's a huge difference between the legal profession and the engineering profession because what engineers do is they put the problem on the table in front of them and they sit around it and they try and solve it whereas the lawyers start to argue with each other and 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 in most of the civil engineering what we're trying to do is solve problems collectively and that drives a certain community spirit around that this isn't a place that is full of, you know, aggressive people trying to shout over each other all the time. On the whole, it's a collaborative sort of gang who are trying to do values aligned, trying to do something useful. And so, and you tell you, not full of egos. I mean, like, you know, you don't have the same. There are other professions where, where people are very, very happy to take the credit for everything. In our profession, I think it's fair to say people. They use the word we quite a lot because everyone, every serious engineer knows that you never do anything on your own in this world. It's all, it's all about teams working together. So there we are. Three reasons to be an engineer. Sign up tomorrow. There, there you go. There you go. And Ed, honestly, it has been not only just a pleasure talking to you and learning more about your interesting career and your plans for the ICE, but you've opened up my eyes a lot. So thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been a genuine pleasure. No, my pleasure. Excellent. And everyone, I will speak to you all next week as usual. Have a good one ahead. Cheers. Cheers.